After the spectacular American victory at the Battle of Buena Vista on February 22nd and 23rd, 1847, a victory set up by the critical reconnaissance of Ben McCullough and a small contingent of Texas Rangers, the theater of the Mexican-American War shifted south. Mexican President and General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana was forced to withdraw into central Mexico to defend his capital, and on March 9, 1847, a 13,000-man strong American army under General Winfield Scott landed at Veracruz on the Mexican Gulf Coast. That army would soon push west down the National Road to defeat Santa Ana's forces in a series of battles, culminating with a successful assault on that capital and the occupation of Mexico City. The Texas Rangers would play no role in the capture of the fabled Halls of Montezuma in September of 1847, but they would engage in fierce counter-guerrilla operations to keep Scott's vital line of supply between Veracruz and Mexico City open. The Rangers' great captain, John Coffey Hayes, now Colonel Jack Hayes, had formed a new company back in Texas planning to continue ranger operations in northern Mexico under General Zachary Taylor. However, under the direct orders of President James K. Polk, the rangers were diverted to Veracruz to serve under Scott's command. That's how vital was the mission to secure the National Road. The rangers arrived in October 1847 to face the challenge of clearing 250 miles of road of mobile irregular forces and Mexican lancers working in very rough terrain. Historian Robert Utley described the situation. Scott's biggest challenge lay not in fighting hard contested battles, but in keeping his army supplied. The National Road linking the port of Veracruz with Mexico City wound its way for 250 miles across three mountain ranges from the tropics to the great central plateau of Mexico. Guerrillas and lancers infested the entire length and only heavily guarded trains could get through. The surrender of Mexico City did not end the affliction for Santa Ana took his army to the countryside to join with the guerrillas and continue the war. The rangers at this time were packing the latest development and firepower for mounted forces, the Walker Colt. The highly regarded Texas Ranger Sam Walker had gone to Connecticut to consult with inventor Samuel Colt on improvements to his revolutionary revolver design. His original Patterson Colt had proved itself in the hands of Hayes Rangers, including Walker, in a battle against the Comanche, and it had been deployed amongst the Rangers in the fighting in northern Mexico. But the Patterson had its faults. It was a five-shot revolver and it threw a 36 caliber ball, which was considered a little underpowered by the Rangers. The mechanism, which featured a trigger that dropped down when the pistol was cocked and no trigger guard, was not robust enough for hard service. Colt listened to Walker and produced a pistol that offered both power and durability in spades. The six-shot Walker Colt was massive, weighed about four and a half pounds and threw a 44 caliber ball or conical bullet, backed by a 60-grain charge of black powder. 
that was equivalent of a moderate rifle charge of that day. By way of comparison, my Smith & Wesson 686 357 Magnum weighs a little over two and a half pounds. The Walker was a beast. The most powerful revolver produced in the U.S. until the advent of the 357 Magnum in the 20th century. Sam Walker himself was back in the field by the summer of 1847, though he was not with the Texas Rangers. He was commissioned a captain in the U.S. Army Mounted Rifles, tasked just as the Rangers were with counter-guerrilla operations along the National Road. Walker may have been a regular Army officer now, but his unit employed Ranger tactics, speed, mobility, and violence of action, along with a very marked disdain for the quality of mercy in going after the Mexican forces who were raiding the Army supply lines. It's telling, I think, that other officers sometimes referred to Walker's men as Rangers. Walker's company had a reputation as a take-no-prisoners outfit. His mercilessness to the enemy was apparently sanctioned at the very highest level. In his book, Cult of Glory, The Bold and Brutal History of the Texas Rangers, Doug J. Swanson writes, In mid-1847, Walker wrote to his brother and told of the capture of Mexicans, quote, who have been guilty of many acts of barbarity toward every unfortunate man who fell into their hands. His men did not, however, seize these Mexicans as prisoners. They were instead executed. I, of course, took summary measures with them, Walker acknowledged. President Polk himself apparently had signed off on such acts and with enthusiasm. The course I pursued was approved and applauded by the commander-in-chief, Walker wrote. I have been left here for the purpose of freeing this part of the country from the hands of marauders that infest it. Walker was killed in action in October 1847 in a fight at a picturesque village named Huamantla in the central Mexico highlands east of Mexico City. His company charged a force of about 500 Mexican lancers and drove them out of the village. Walker paused in the village plaza to secure some captured artillery pieces and the lancers rallied and counterattacked. Walker was mortally wounded and his men were pinned down. Swanson in Cult of Glory quotes a couple of troopers in the mounted rifles who described the battle and Walker's death. A cowardly Mexican greaser from the window or housetop fired and shot him through the head, said J. Jacob Oswindell of the Pennsylvania Volunteers. Another one shot him through the breast from behind the corner. Walker sank down upon his knees, striking his forehead upon the ground, Sergeant Myers wrote in his diary. His men carried him to the churchyard and laid him in the doorway. Walker gave his Colt revolving pistols to one of them, Sergeant Myers said, and told them, Boys, fight to the last. Never surrender this place as long as one of you is living. He lasted about 15 minutes more. The men wrapped his body in white linen and concealed it. Myers said rangers and soldiers were bursting into tears as the cry spread among them, Captain Walker is killed. Walker's men held out against overwhelming odds until a strong relief force under General Joseph Lane stormed into Huamantla and routed Santa Ana's lancers. 
with considerable slaughter. Virtually unhinged by the killing of their much-loved captain, Walker's men went on a rampage. They broke into homes and shops and got into the liquor, and things got very bad. They killed indiscriminately, women were raped, and they left the village pillaged with dead civilians strewn around the streets. As this was happening, Colonel Hayes was putting his Texas Rangers through a short but intensive training evolution outside of Veracruz, familiarizing them with their new weapons and drilling them so that they could act together as a unit and in concert with regular army units, including dragoons, cavalry that was also trained to fight effectively as mounted infantry. The Rangers took up their counter-guerrilla operations on November 2nd, just days after Walker's death, working with Robert Patterson's volunteer division. U.S. Army Major Ian B. Lyle wrote an excellent master's thesis for the Army Command and General Staff College in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, titled Mixed Blessing, the Role of the Texas Rangers in the Mexican War, 1846-1848. He writes, The volunteers would garrison the towns along the route to provide rapid reaction forces for convoys under attack and safe havens along the passage, while the rangers were to scour the countryside and rid it of guerrillas. The combined force reached Jalapa on the 4th of November, and as the volunteers garrisoned the city, the rangers established their camp. Meanwhile, Hayes took two companies and pressed on to Puebla, arriving a few days later. One of the first operations that the combined force undertook was a prisoner rescue planned and executed in cooperation with General Lane's regular forces. Lyle reports, Hayes met with Brigadier General Joseph P. Lane, and at Lane's request, both men began planning a raid to free some Americans held captive in nearby Izucar de Matamoros. On the 23rd of November, a combined force of Hayes Rangers and some Louisiana Dragoons, accompanied by General Lane, liberated the 15 American prisoners, captured some artillery, small arms, and ammunition, and, quote, killed a good many Mexicans. On their way back to Puebla, 200 Lancers attacked the command. Hayes moved to the fore, assumed command, and ordered a charge that drove away the Mexican unit. The charging rangers chased the Mexicans over a rise where they encountered the main body of the Mexican force, some 500 Lancers. General Lane described the fight in his report. When we found it necessary to retire for the purpose of reloading, his men having no sabers, he halted in their rear, and as the enemy advanced, deliberately shot two of them dead and covered his retreat until the arrival of reinforcements. Hayes' cool leadership had again saved the day. The artillery was quickly brought to bear and the Mexicans withdrew. The command returned to Puebla with two killed and two wounded. This mixed force of less than 200 men had met and defeated 500 Lancers under the command of General J. Rea and scattered the remaining 1,200 members of the enemy command at a cost of only four casualties. The Texas Rangers then rode into a volatile and unwelcoming Mexico City several weeks after General Scott had conquered it. They made quite a spectacle. Lieutenant Colonel Ebenezer Dumont of Indiana wrote, 
Here they came, ragtag and bobtail, pell-mell and helter-skelter. The head of one was covered with a slouch hat, that of another with a towering cocked hat, while twenty others had caps made of the skins of every variety of wild and tame beasts. Almost immediately there occurred an incident that should have put everyone on notice that occupation duty was not a good fit for Texas Rangers. A gang of young toughs threw stones at a passing contingent of rangers on the street. Lieutenant Colonel DeMont recalled, Never was a guilty act so instantly punished. Out came the Walker Colts, and in a blaze of gunfire, ten Mexicans fell down on the street. Two more were wounded and dragged off to the calaboose. Robert Utley, in analyzing the rangers' time in Mexico City, explains that Rangers did not calibrate offenses. The butchery of one of their own in a back alley, an insult, or the theft of a handkerchief all earned the same response, a slug from a heavy walker colt. The city's residents did not take kindly to the American occupation, and soldiers who let their guard down could be suddenly stoned from above or shoved into the gutter. As Adjutant John S. Ford recorded, some gringo lost his life every night. An exceptionally violent incident occurred in early 1848 when a ranger named Adam Alsons ventured into a part of Mexico City known as Cutthroat. And you can probably tell by the name that this was a bad part of town. And you might surmise that a ranger Alsons might have been looking for the kind of action a man seeks out in the bad part of town. And the action that he got was the fatal kind. Ford wrote, He was assailed by a murderous crowd and almost literally cut to pieces. Those who saw him said his heart was visible and its pulsations were plainly perceptible. He was a good and brave man and had the esteem and confidence of the whole command. It took Alson's eight hours to die. The rangers buried him with military honors and then went looking for blood. The night after the funeral, some 15 or 20 rangers slipped down the mean streets of Cutthroat and started killing. For an hour, Cutthroat rang with the roar of Walker Colts, and when the rangers left the neighborhood, they left at least 80 denizens of its dives dead on the streets. It was, Ford said, a frightful outburst of revenge. General Scott was not happy about the violence, but he recognized that the ranger leadership hadn't sanctioned it, and ultimately the army didn't do anything. Scott figured the best way to keep them out of trouble was to put them back to work, and he sent the rangers back out on the national road to go after the last guerrilla resistance. Incidentally, adjutant John S. Ford would become a legendary ranger captain in his own right in the 1850s going after the Comanches in their remote villages and he would go down in history as Captain Rip Ford. The one Mexican the Texas Rangers most wanted to kill was Santa Ana. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the Texans felt about Santa Ana what most Americans felt about Osama bin Laden after the September 11, 2001 Al-Qaeda attacks. He wasn't just an enemy to them, he was a personification of evil. 
Santa Ana had a checkered career, to say the least, rising to power, then falling hard, and then rising again. He was president of Mexico when Texas rebelled in 1836, and he personally led an army north to crush the rebellion. The army of this man who styled himself the Napoleon of the West famously stormed the Alamo and put its garrison to the sword. In a much more egregious atrocity, they also massacred surrendered prisoners at the town of Goliad. General Sam Houston caught Santa Ana napping, or otherwise occupied, at San Jacinto on April 21, 1836, and the Texans routed his army in 18 minutes of slaughter. Santa Ana was captured trying to pass as a common soldier and was forced to acknowledge Texas independence. Despite the desires of many of his men, Houston spared the Generalissimo's life, and he would, after regaining power in 1842, send out an expeditionary force to raid Texas again. So there was very, very deep bad blood there. Santa Ana was bounced out of power yet one more time, but made a comeback again in time for the outbreak of war with the United States in 1846. The Texas Rangers wanted his scalp. Badly. And rumors ran rampant through the Army of of plots to assassinate Santa Ana, even though he was in U.S. Army custody and under General Scott's protection. Santa Ana himself surely knew that his life was in danger, and he must have felt more than a little tremor of fear when he came face-to-face with the legendary Texas Ranger, Colonel Jack Hayes. In Cult of Glory, Doug Swanson recounts how this came to pass. Early in the war, a New York newspaper correspondent wrote that the Rangers had one overriding goal in Mexico, to kill General Santa Ana. He may capitulate, he may surrender, he may be under the shelter of General Taylor. Actually, in this case, he ended up under the protection of General Scott. But if the Rangers come within reach of him, they will slay him, the writer predicted, even if it be at the table of the American commander. They had their chance in the spring of 1848. With the fighting finally at an end, Santa Ana found himself at such a table, not of the commander, but of a U.S. Army officer. Deposed and defeated, he was by now a morose, portly has-been with a peg leg, dependent upon the Americans for dispensation until he could transit to exile in Jamaica. On this afternoon, he took his dinner with his wife and daughter in an estate near Jalapa. A crowd had formed outside the door in the dining room. Major John R. Kenley of Maryland, who was with the general, noticed Hayes among the onlookers. The famous ranger wore a sombrero, a jacket, and around his waist a silk sash. Kenley knew Hayes, and he had heard of Ranger's threats to kill Santa Ana. A lawyer by training, the Major sought to defuse the situation. He went to Hayes and said, suppose you let me present you to General Santa Ana. Santa Ana was eating fruit as the two men approached the table. He started to rise, and Kenley introduced Hayes. When I pronounced this name, Santa Ana's whole appearance and demeanor changed, Kenley recalled, And if a loaded bombshell with fuse burning and sputtering had fallen on that dinner table, a greater sensation would not have been caused. Mexican officers rose in alarm, Kenley said, and the general's wife turned pale. 
Santa Anna abruptly sat down and resumed eating his fruit, his gaze on the table. Colonel Hayes, gentleman as he was, bowed politely and withdrew from the room, Kenley said. The matter of Santa Anna's future safety, Kenley thought, had now been diffused. Well, not entirely. As it turned out, the Texas Rangers never did get their scalp, but it was a near-run thing. The Rangers, in this case, exercised restraint, persuaded by the eloquence of Rip Ford. In his thesis, Major Lyle describes the strange scene as Santa Ana's carriage rolled down the contested national road to carry him to Veracruz and on into exile. On the 25th of April, 1848, Santa Ana made his way along the national road as he traveled into exile yet again for disappointing his countrymen. A large group of Texas Rangers under the command of Adjutant Ford traveled the same road. The men decided to kill Santa Ana in revenge for the Alamo, the Goliad Massacre, and all the other pain and death wrought by Santa Ana in Mexico's struggles against Texas. Ford knew he had to act swiftly or be party to an unlawful murder after the termination of the war. He rode to the head of the assembled rangers and said, Yes, that is admitted, referring to Santa Ana's crimes. But did not the world condemn General Santa Ana for this cruel butchery of prisoners? That was a stain upon his reputation as a soldier. Now, was it not considered an act of magnanimity on the part of the government of the Republic of Texas when its officials liberated General Santa Ana after what happened? Reflect a moment. General Santa Ana dishonored himself by murdering prisoners of war. Will you not dishonor Texas and ourselves by killing him? You would dishonor Texas. The Texans lined both sides of the road, and as the carriage carrying the disgraced former ruler of Mexico went by, the rangers stood in eerie silence, never uttering a single word. Santa Ana was allowed to pass unharmed through the ranks of his former foes and into exile. This very cinematic moment reflects an important point. The Texas Rangers were hard to control, but they weren't out of control. Strong leadership and an important mission could keep them in line. It's also worth noting that the Rangers weren't the only outfit that got out of line when the cruelties of war sparked an urge for revenge. The rampage in Huamantla after Captain Walker's death was the work of regular U.S. Army troops. Saying other units did bad things isn't an excuse for Ranger excesses, but it puts them into context. Counterinsurgency warfare has a particularly nasty edge that slices open a sack full of terrors, unleashing both the motive and the opportunity for dark deeds. Major Lyle's master thesis is all about calculating the credits and debits of the Texas Rangers' service in the Mexican-American War, and I think his assessment is on the money. So we'll give him the last word. The Texas Rangers cut a large path through the history of the Mexican War and created an enduring reputation, some of it deserved, some of it not. Their combat record is top-notch, tough, courageous fighters with the leadership, discipline, and firepower to win where others could not. Their reputation for ill-discipline and excess is for the most part overblown, although several very serious incidents did occur. Perhaps the greatest evaluation of their wartime service came from those with and for whom they served. 
General Taylor, General Scott, Secretary of War Marcy, and President Polk all weighed the advantages and disadvantages to be gained by employing the Texas Rangers in combat in the Mexican War, and all four men came to the same conclusion. The benefits of the Rangers' service outweighed the cost. For them, the Texas Rangers were no mixed blessing at all. I'd like to thank the patrons who make the Frontier Partisans podcast and the Frontier Partisans blog possible. Appreciate your support, and if you're interested in throwing down a few clues to keep the electronic campfire here going, the link to the Patreon page is in the show notes. So tip of the hat here to Rick Schwertfeger, David Rolson, Paul McNamee, Matthew Free Live Free, El Randolito, Jerry Nunnally, Alan Godseff, Bob Dice, Chaz Clifton, Wade McKnight, Mike McIver, Harry Kaiser, Ash, Bob Buckholtz, Deuce Richardson, Bridger Larson, Matthew Campbell, Hawk and Horse, John Sweet, Josh Buchanan, Malcolm Brooks, Jerry Popple, Jeremy Popple, David Costello, Clint Richards, Cody Rush, Speedo, and Jimmy Mauser. So uh, we're going to leave the Mexican-American War, but we're not going to leave Mexico. Uh, By request, the next podcast episode is going to cover the actions of Leander McNally's special force in the Nueces Strip, the area between the Nueces River and the Rio Grande in the 1870s when a state of low-intensity warfare had broken out between uh, Mexican cattle rustlers um, under the, the auspices of the very interesting patriot-slash-rogue Juan Cortina and, uh, and the Texans. And uh, McNally's force was tasked with essentially taming the Nueces Strip, and their actions there are one of the, uh, the great legendary feats of the Texas Rangers. And while this was not a declared war, and neither Mexico nor the United States wanted to get into a shooting war at this time, it was definitely a counterinsurgency with all of that, uh, all that that entails. So uh, it's a action-packed story, and I'm looking forward to telling it. So uh, we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>